Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Bhavani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Mike Alkire, who's president of Premier Incorporated, which helps more than 4,000 hospitals and health systems and hundreds of thousands of providers improve efficiency and clinical outcomes through supply chain management, pharmacy integration, and other strategies. As president, Mike leads the continued integration of Premier's clinical, financial, supply chain, and operational performance improvement offerings. He also led Premier's efforts to address public health and safety issues from the nationwide drug shortage problem, testifying before the U.S. House of Representatives regarding Premier's research on shortages and gray market price gouging. So, Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. Shiv, thank you for having me. So we talked right before the show about your Indiana connections, but I would love to hear in your own words about your background and what led you to now leading Premier. You know, it's interesting. I grew up as one of four children. We always had a very, very healthy lifestyle. All four of us actually ended up with swimming scholarships. So uh, my folks didn't know what to do with us. We were kind of rowdy and rambunctious kids. So they they just threw us in a swimming pool and they knew we'd, we'd be tired out by the end of workouts. So we've always had that as a backdrop. My uh, folks are 84 and 86. They still go on three bike rides a week, somewhere between 12 and 18 miles. So they're very much into health and fitness and those kinds of things. So I guess that's just part of who I am and how I grew up. And then, you know, further, I went to study computer science in undergrad and then went to business school. And then I got out and worked for Deloitte. One of my first projects was actually building out the Medicaid system for the state of Arizona. Obviously, that continued to focus my interest into healthcare. And then I, when I left Deloitte, I went to Capgemini, Capgemini Ernst & Young. And at that point, I, I took on more uh, higher level roles in terms of business turnarounds. We did a lot of global supply chain work. So when Premier came looking for some help in terms of turnaround capabilities and some supply chain expertise, it was a really natural fit for me. And then, you know, further to your point about healthcare, because Premier is so important in terms of our ability to get access to products for our healthcare systems and also the data and the analytics that we have to help our healthcare systems drive improvements. Obviously, my computer science history in building out benchmarks and artificial intelligence and machine learning to help drive improvements and really to codify or hardwire how you standardize care and those kinds of things. I guess all of that led to where I am today and and the the business that Premier focuses on as an organization. Well, that's that's pretty impressive. And before we go into exactly how Premier does what it does, uh, as well as the last few months and how how that's affected everything you do, I do want to double click on the fact that your parents, 84 and 86, are very active. It reminded me a lot of, we have an advisor and mentor of mine named Alan Patrikoff, who started the firm Graycroft and now just launched a new firm called Primetime Partners. And he has this term for people like your parents called the ageless generation. They just don't age. And he's 85. And he actually came out skiing with us in Park City for our board meeting in January and was doing double blacks with the rest of us down Park City. It's amazing. I love to hear stories like that. I And to your point, you know, this ageless generation grew up with hard work and this idea that a rolling stone gathers no moss. And I think he is, as well as my folks, sort of exemplify that metaphor. Something for us to all strive for. So getting to 4,000 plus hospitals and health systems is no small feat. What is the secret to premier success and what is your core mission, given that you offer so many different products and services? 
Our core mission really is, is centered around helping improve healthcare for our communities. And we do that through our supply chain capabilities, as well as our technologies and our collaboratives and, and advisory services. And so, you know, if you think about our roots, you know, we started out as a group purchasing organization where we brought the scale of thousands of hospitals to negotiate better pricing for drugs and, and uh, medical devices. And then we had a, always had a very, very strong lineage in clinical analytics. And so our focus really was to create benchmarks to help our healthcare systems compare to one another and then create improvement agendas for all of them to continue to improve the, the quality and the safety of care that they were providing to their communities. And then further, we, we took that technology and then put on a sort of reporting mechanism. So we then re began to build out capabilities to help them report to the federal government, CMS, Medicare, or to payers and those kinds of things. And then, you know, fast forward all the way to today, we've made significant investments in our technology, whereas, you know, we build out machine learning classifiers now to identify through symptoms of patients, to identify where COVID is potentially occurring within the U.S. So we can identify surges in the real time. This is 2020 incredible high-tech stuff. Further, we can actually predict whether or not a patient that has those symptoms, we can predict with a high degree of probability of whether or not those patients are going to end up in the hospital. And that's really critical so that hospitals have an understanding of what potential demand on those systems would look like. So our whole technology platform is this whole idea of how do you take all these insights that we get from all this great data that we have and and begin to pivot it and, and really put it into the workflow or the electronic medical record so you're hardwiring how care is being provided. And then we're kind of continuing to go upstream in that part of the business by creating capabilities around prior authorization. So you know this, you know, Shiv, when you go to the hospital or you go to the doctor and you've got to get another procedure or you maybe you have to get an x-ray or something like that, Sometimes you have to wait to see if it gets approved. And what we're trying to do is speed up that whole process based upon your screens or what your lab results are or lab values are and determine whether or not at that point of care, you should take the next step along the, your care journey. So we're, we're trying to, again, bring this AI and machine learning to the point of care as much as we possibly can. That's pretty big vision. And obviously you guys have accomplished quite a bit. You know, let's go into COVID because you mentioned being able to predict and serve health systems and communities that you could predict COVID spikes. You know, I know you've been involved in advising the federal government on COVID-related issues. What can you tell us about some of the work there and how the last eight, nine months in the U.S.'s response to the crisis? So the way I describe it is the COVID situation became a lot more real back in the sort of January, February timeframe. And if you're going to your neighborhood Costco, you started to notice lines were getting longer you started to notice that baskets were fuller of items that weren't necessarily purchased at that scale. And I would tell you that the exact same thing was actually happening in healthcare. People were getting prepared for the onset of this virus, and it put an incredible strain on a pretty narrow supply chain. You had all that going on on the demand side. And then on the supply side, um, quite frankly, you had bad actors like China just absolutely messing with the world economy. And I'll give you a couple of examples. 
So it takes us about four or five months to stand up manufacturing capability for a product in you know, Southeast Asia. And we had just stood up an N95 facility to produce N95 masks. And it was in Taiwan. We actually had a couple of production lines of products put on boats in early January. And then that factory came back to us after we actually worked with them to stand this production up and said, sorry, we can't ship anymore. But Big China is saying all this product has to go there. And so, you know, we lost a significant amount of volume that we were planning to use for our healthcare systems here in the U.S. So that was number one. Number two, Chinese New Year, typically about six weeks, about February 15th. It goes from January to about February 15th. Manufacturers don't produce products. COVID hits China. They're now not producing products till the middle of March. Again, you have all this demand that's already happening, right? People are looking and scurrying for products. You're starting to see now a little bit of COVID happening in Seattle. Then you're starting to see it really start to take off in New York City. And you have this incredible amount of demand that's occurring. And then China goes experiences this where they can't produce product. Further, there were a bunch of companies in China that had historically not produced product. And, and China rightfully so said, we've got to look at the quality of what these guys are producing. However, We'd been working with a number of manufacturers for years that were producing high quality products. And they, you know, China came back and said, well, we're going to put a quality oversight over all of them, which just constricted supply even more. And then further, there were other really critical elements to an N95. There's a piece in there called filtration media that's made of SMS. High amount of that's being produced in China. And at some point in the April timeframe, they stopped shipping filtration media to anyone else outside of China. And so you had all this stuff happening. You had this, this incredible constriction on the supply. And all it did really was, you know, besides the fact we couldn't get access to product, it drove the price up. And so as we get into this podcast, I'll share with you some of our ideas around creating more resilient supply chain, but very, very importantly, creating more domestic capability for critical products that we might need in future pandemics. That's fascinating. Thanks for those very specific examples. You know, the, the reason we even call this podcast Raise the Line is exactly what Premier is doing. Can you tell me a bit more about supply chain resiliency and what are some of the lasting effects you think will happen out of this COVID experience so that we're more prepared should, you know, God forbid, COVID-22 comes out? Shiv, I love the context of raising the line and you hit the nail on the head. It's how do you create enough capacity when the capacity is absolutely needed by our communities? And so you asked the question about the federal government. We actually did start a coalition of GPOs, distributors and manufacturers working with HHS and FEMA to identify where there were weaknesses in the supply chain, to identify areas that we needed help in terms of increasing the skids. I mean, there at some point, you know, I remember India was threatening not to ship, I believe it was propofol, could have been fentanyl. The Fed stepped in and, and helped us get access to some of those because back then and you know, in the March, April timeframe in New York, we were struggling with folks that were on ventilation and they needed those drugs to ensure that ventilation was occurring appropriately. So we started the coalition and it really was all about just getting as much information as possible to the federal government. Where that kind of skated then was, you know, we built out some other AI capabilities using databases that were in the public, like Hopkins and others, that talked about where the surge was going to continue to sort of evolve. And because of our experience in Seattle and New York, we knew what the utilization of PPE and, and other critical drugs would need to be. Uh, so as those folks were building out those models of where the spread was going to go, 
we then build out an AI uh, tool that said, these are the kinds of products that need to, you know, we need to make sure get to these parts of the population as quick as possible so we can protect our frontline workers. In terms of the future, it's really interesting. We think there's five areas of focus. One, we have to have more transparency. The feds do a great job as it relates to where the raw materials or active pharmaceutical ingredients of a pharmaceutical is being manufactured. That's pretty much spread 15% across six different countries where APIs are being manufactured. But what they don't do is they don't understand where the excipients or where the raw materials to make up the API are being manufactured. And we're worried in pharma that a disproportionate amount, a significant amount of that product's being produced in just one country in China. So we've got to bring more transparency on the country of origin for all products that go into our pharmaceutical and medical device supply chain. That's number one. Number two, we have to create more regionality in terms of where these products are being produced. So let's not have so much dependence on one country. If there are other countries in the region where we want to leverage lower labor costs and those kinds of things, let's figure out ways to get them to produce products. And by the way, we've been historically doing that for the last two or three years, but I do think we have to continue to push that faster. Three, we fundamentally believe we need more domestic manufacturing of critical products. And it's interesting, people always say, you know, well, to what end? And to what end is this? We need to make sure that our frontline workers are always protective. And we need to be thinking much more innovatively about how we produce product. And, and I have an example of one piece of PPE equipment that historically had a lot of labor costs associated with manufacturing it. Until we took the focus of saying, no, this is going to be produced in the US, we would never have known that you could create a highly automated process. And this is some world-class engineers and innovators helping us produce this. But to produce that product in the U.S. with highly automated capabilities that can rival the cost of these products being produced in, in low-cost countries. So this whole focus on domestic manufacturing, I call it infrastructure 2.0. If you remember five, eight years ago, 10 years ago, there was this infrastructure 1.0, which is this bipartisan agreement of let's focus on rebuilding our bridges and our roads and get jobs, job creation opportunities to our communities. Well, I characterize infrastructure 2.0 in a similar vein, but this is all about how are we manufacturing products here? How are we manufacturing raw materials here? How are we manufacturing drugs here, generic drugs, and then the APIs and those kinds of things here in the U.S.? And because drugs lend themselves well to highly automated processes, you would think that we could absolutely do that here. So that's number three. Number four you talked about is the data. So how do we leverage our data to understand the appropriate distribution patterns of products. You know, one of the big issues we had over the last three or four months is everybody's been building out stockpiles. So you had federal government forcing stockpiles, states forcing stockpiles, and then healthcare systems creating stockpiles. It created this huge demand for products and, and over-purchasing. And so we think leveraging data and technology that already exists we could create virtual stockpiles to ensure everybody's got the product that they need. And then on my fifth point was what I already talked about, which was infrastructure 2.0. Wow. I, I love that. I mean, that's really well articulated and uh, I think very, very interesting. You know, one thing, as you were describing the dependency, the first two points, uh, transparency and, and regionalization and not being so dependent on any individual country for required equipment uh, or the raw materials that become the APIs. As an example, I couldn't help but think about last year, 
companies like Apple and Google and domestic companies that were complaining about how reliant we were on certain raw materials to go in and make semiconductors and other high-tech electronics. I'm curious, like you are all specialized in building supply chain resiliency for the healthcare system. Is it like an industry group you work with, like the Amazons and Apples and big tech to basically share best practices or do the similar lobbying to make sure that we aren't as a country, we aren't as dependent on any individual country and we have more transparency? You know, only to the degree that it's healthcare related. There are industry groups that we get together and we share perspectives, even like the coalition that we stood up. And we talk a little bit about creating the resiliency and supply chain. But, you know, I think it's a great point. It's so interesting. I was on um, with uh, one of the leaders of Homeland Security, and this was just before the virus. This was back in November and December. And I, I was actually talking about our dependence from a pharmaceutical standpoint on China. And by the way, I use China, but you can use it as a proxy maybe for India as well. But those two are the great big producers of these products. And I talked about if there were ever any geopolitical issues or other issues that were to occur, our citizens would be in grave risk. And so I, to me, think that this is a call to arms to do exactly what you said. I think we need to get together with not only the brilliant suppliers in healthcare, the Medtronics and the 3Ms and the, and the J&Js of the world, but we need to look outside and start to have the conversations with you know, the Apples and other high-tech manufacturers to talk about are there best practices that, to your point, that we can share across industries. Totally. That's very interesting. And so the lines between those tech companies and healthcare are actually blurring, as you know, with, you know, Amazon trying to get into more healthcare supplies and also buying, you know, companies like PillPack. I'm very curious how you see that entrance because they also have a lot of the data. That's one macro trend. The other macro trend that interests me a lot is basically the consolidation of these systems. And one interesting thing Cyril Phillip, a previous RTL guest from Providence mentioned, is that because telehealth has become so important to their operations because of COVID, they're even looking at potentially buying up practices and groups outside of the Northwest. And so I'm curious how you think those 4,000 health systems that you serve right now, like the consolidation will be helping or hurting the supply chain in any way? I think consolidation's all about getting access to capital and continuing to build out capabilities to care for the populations. And so as these entities consolidate, there's the opportunity, right, to drive down overall overhead costs and to create standards of care across a much broader part of the population, which quite frankly, we think is critical. I, we started a company called Contigo Health, just as a sidebar, which really was a it came out of a conversation with Walmart where they were saying, look, for our employees across the country, it's incredibly lumpy the way healthcare gets provided to our employees. We would love for someone like Premier to create a high value network of care deliverers. So think of the providers and the hospitals and those kinds of things. And so about a year and a half ago, we kicked off a program called Contigo to actually do that work with employers to create a mechanism where you know they could actually rely on the same standard of care, you know, regardless of, of where that person resided in, in this country. And so, I think initiatives like that are moonshots, right? To the degree that you can get care in South Dakota the same way that you can get care in Kansas the same way as and you can get care in Florida is is absolutely going to be critical. And the reason is, if you think about any quality improvement process, you need all that information to actually improve. So you need as much of that data and as much of that standardization to occur so that you can put improvement mechanisms in place to constantly improve the way care is being provided. So 
I think consolidation is driving down that path. The second you asked about entrance into our market, it's really interesting. Healthcare is a very unique market, right? Because if you're in healthcare and you're discharged from a facility, you're not going to necessarily trust from an e-commerce provider that the gauze that you're ordering or the bandage or whatever wasn't housed in some middle person's garage where it wasn't appropriately cared for. And we built out a capability called Stocked, which is an e-commerce platform. And the reason we did it was because, you know, all of my healthcare systems have all these non-acute facilities. Think of rehabs and doctor's offices and, and other facilities that need to get access to PPE and other products. And so what we were able to do with that platform is leverage our catalog and our pricing and our scale to get great pricing, but really have an e-commerce platform that really understood the chain of custody, where products are, and knowing that you're getting a high quality product when you go out to that stocked platform. So I think it's interesting. And, and, you know, the story, I still think it's being written, but I do think healthcare is very, very unique and very specialized. And you don't buy products that you consume or that you put on a wound the same way that you're going to buy shoes. That makes a ton of sense. So I um, appreciate you commenting on both of those. So we have an audience of millions of current and future healthcare professionals, as well as oftentimes patients and family members. I'm curious, what types of things would you like them to know about what Premier does or what you are planning to do as well? I think Premier's future is all about innovation. So how do you take these two pretty significant businesses and continue to innovate them to drive value for the healthcare ecosystem? And so from a supply chain standpoint, it's all about technology enablement, right? So I talked a little bit about stock. We're also launching an e-invoicing and e-payment capability that will standardize around how invoices occur. And believe it or not, if you're a very large idea and you think that you're talking about consolidation, when you have two big systems coming together, you have many hospitals, 30, 40 hospitals, you have hundreds of critical access centers, you have tons of rehab facilities and, and all these other non-acute settings. We fundamentally believe there's an opportunity to create scale by the way that invoicing can be centralized and managed appropriately and conserve cash and provide a better experience for the suppliers who are providing products into those ecosystems. So e-invoicing and e-payables is going to be a, a big part of our future, but it's all around technology enabling the supply chain. You already heard a little bit about what we're doing with vertical integration. I would suggest to you we're going to continue to look at ways to produce products with more resiliency in the supply chain and domestically and, and near shore. You know, it's not something Premier has done historically before COVID-19. We had a little bit of a, a contract manufacturing group that provided some products, but given what happened with COVID-19, you know, my board that's made up of a lot of CEOs of healthcare systems said, never again, we can't be in a scenario where our healthcare workers are put at risk because we don't have the appropriate products to protect them. So we're going to have to look at domestic nearshore stuff there. On the technology side of the business, I think it's so interesting. It comes down to machine learning and AI. We've got all this great data. We've got some of the largest data assets in the country. Uh, but how do you actually put it to work? And how do you do it in very, very efficient ways where you're leveraging machine learning, understanding where there are identifiers that identify patients, and then you're taking that information and writing the appropriate protocols of care right into the workflow, into the electronic medical record. And I think that's where healthcare is skating. And it's really all about standardizing care and driving higher levels of quality and safety. 
Wow, that's a lot to look forward to. And my last question, because I know I've taken you a little over time, is what advice would you give to current or future healthcare professionals considering staying in healthcare or pursuing their chosen career in healthcare? Shiv, I love the question. So I would characterize it as three things. I always end my own podcast with what are the couple of words that describe me? And, and then I ask my guests to tell me what describe them. I've gotten by with my leadership style that involves a couple of words. One is being courageous. The other is being humble. You know, being humble in terms of being open to new ideas and truly listening, not, not listening with an ear to respond, but truly listening and trying to understand what the other party is actually talking about. So humble and humility is number one. Courage is, you know, it's taking the bold actions. It's persevering when it gets tough. It's following your dreams. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things that I sort of think about. I've, I've also added one last word with all these issues that are happening in our communities around social injustice and things of that nature, and that's humanity. You know, we've got to stop this labeling people. We've got to, humanity to me means treat everybody as an individual. Don't label somebody because of what you think. There's an old adage, you know, you can't tell a book by its cover. Well, let's go back to that old adage and truly appreciate every individual as a unique human. And I think if we do that, we're going to be far better off in the future. Totally. At Osmosis, we always talk about how do you focus on the things that we share in common? as opposed to the labels and other things that divide us. So I couldn't agree more with you on those three points. And also just on behalf of the audience, we'd like to thank you for the work that you do at Premier because not a lot of health professionals necessarily would, would know the company or what you all do, but you are the ones who help make sure that the health systems and rehab facilities and other places they work at are properly equipped, that they're staffed, that they're protected. And I truly appreciate the work you do for raising the line of healthcare. So with that, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Shiv, thanks for having me. I'm Shiv Rivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.